Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, October 13th, 2010. Happy Tribulation Day for those of you who follow William Tapley. Now, I know you're thinking, well, the tribulation started today and, um, well, I wasn't part of the partial rapture. What do I do? Yeah, because, you know, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, he was saying that, you know, that the the whole church won't be raptured. So um, if, if you haven't been raptured today on Tribulation Day, then uh, grab your rosary and head out to the desert. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Yeah, um, there is, um, well, I, I say this often, almost daily, there is no shortage of bizarre and crazy things being said about God. And it just seems to me to be, well, needless. I mean, why do I need to make stuff up about God? I don't. I don't need to make up a thing about him. And the reason I don't need to make up anything about God is, well, because he's revealed things about himself. There's there's an entire book. Yeah, God's given us a book. You're going, there's a book? Yeah, there's a book. We call it the Bible. It's God's word. And, uh, <sighs> you know, I, I feel like all this stuff is like a chasing after the wind. It's It's as if people are not really worshiping the one true God anymore in church because they don't really seem truly interested in hearing what his word says and what he's revealed about themselves, they're trying to figure out whispers. Yeah, <clears throat> whispers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in fact, yesterday, uh, <laughs> <sighs> they were uh, they were making available uh, a, a recent book by Bill Hybels. Uh, it was available for free for a limited uh, time on the... Um, <clears throat> on the uh, Amazon.com website in the Kindle vi- version. And, you know, if you have an iPhone, you can read a Kindle book. If you have a, a laptop computer, you can read a Kindle book. So I downloaded uh, B- uh, Bill Hybels' The Power of a Whisper. And I, I, it just, yeah. <sighs> yeah, um, it, it, it it's all about hearing from the voice of God in everything except for the Bible. And uh, it's like, why? what is wrong with God's word? Is it that you don't like what it says? 
Do you not like what God's revealed about himself there? Are you still at war with him? Have you not repented yet of your self-righteousness, your false religion, and your idolatry? Is that the reason why you're looking for God in every little whisper and nudge and little birdie tweet outside of your window? I'm I'm still flabbergasted. um, I'm still flabbergasted from the sermon we reviewed not too long ago from Joel Osteen, uh, where Joel Osteen, you know, know, how to tell when God's speaking to you. You know, my mother, she was, you know, she was sitting in her kitchen and, and, and there was this little bird that flew up on her windowsill and she knew that that was a sign from God. (laughs) It's like, you know, you want to take your head and, Find your desk and then begin beating your head against your... That hurts. Your desk. Oh, it's... What is going on here? And... Yeah, you know, listen, you don't need to chase whispers. You don't have to be... You don't have to become an expert in animistic religions. You don't have to become a panentheist or a pantheist. You don't need to learn how to read tea leaves. You don't need to learn how to, you know, to basically read the entrails of sacrificial animals. No, you, you don't. I mean, and all of that stuff, isn't that just folly and subjectivity anyway? God hasn't promised to speak to you in a whisper. He hasn't. God hasn't promised to speak to you through little birds chirping. No, he hasn't. God hasn't promised you to promise to speak to you through your neighbor's dog who growls at you every time you mow your lawn. God hasn't promised to talk to you through a donkey. He hasn't promised to talk to you through the stars or through cloud formations, crop circles, or anything of the sort. He has spoken in his word. And, I mean, is it too much to ask Christian pastors, you know, put away the whispers and the birdies and uh, the crop circles and the astrology and the and all that other weird stuff that you're... And, you know, get back to the Bible. You know, you've heard of it, God's Word. You know, uh, something to be said about that. Because God doesn't promise to speak to you in those other ways, but he has already spoken to us in his Word. Maybe this is just too simple. I mean, you know, I, I know what the problem is. I am just so, yeah, you know... I'm so first century in my approach here. You know, come on, this is the 21st century, Roseboro. You know, what God spoke, you know, 2,000 years ago, you think that applies today? Come on, you know. Did uh, Peter and James and John, you know, the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, they didn't even have televisions. They didn't have iPods. They didn't have Blackberries. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Facebook. And to which I say, boy, that sounds like a blessing almost, doesn't it? Anyway, they, you know, so they, they didn't have newspapers. They didn't know. They weren't able to receive email from across the globe. They weren't able to read the news in Sydney, Australia when they woke up in the morning and drank coffee. 
that was handpicked by Juan Valdez in the hills of Colombia. <laughs> the Apostle Peter probably had a beard and wasn't able to shave using his Mach 5 razor. And you expect what they've written, you know, 2,000 years ago to somehow have some significance you expect us to believe that's where God wants us to go to hear his voice? Yes! <laughs> yes! That's exactly where I think you should go. Because that other stuff, it's crazy! Come on, it's tribulation day? And if you're not raptured, grab a rosary and head out to the desert. Hello! That's not loony? The stuff that I play from Patricia King, Rick Warren, the seeker-driven guys, and they're dreaming? That's not nuts? Come on. <laughs> God's word sounds uh, convincingly sane in light of the weird stuff that we're hearing nowadays. Yeah. God has spoken. I, it's in his word, and I know it's there. And in order to understand it, all I need, I just need to hear it and understand basic grammar. Nouns, verbs, pronouns, adverbs, adjectives, you know, subordinate clauses, things of that nature. And I can get what God is generally, I can get what he's communicating. The ideas convey a thought, and that thought has its origin in, in, the, in the throne of God and in the mind of God. What is the Bible? The Bible is the written mind of God. Not just any old deity, but the only deity, the one true God, the one who spoke the universe and the world and the planets and the animals and, and everything you see into existence in six days. He has a lot to say. And he said it, and he has more that he is going to say when we see him face to face on the day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Until then, we're to persevere in his word, hold fast to what's been preached and taught. Proclaim it to our family. Pro proclaim it from the rooftops. Preach it from the pulpits. Cling to it and hold on to it until he returns. It's not long now. Soon he will return. Could be tomorrow. I'm kind of hoping it is. <sighs> anyway, <clears throat> just had to get that off my chest. Just had to get that off. You know, just... Ha! <clears throat> Would you like to know what I <clears throat> have prepared today for today's <clears throat> Fighting for the Faith? You know, I, you know, <laughs> being the world's expert dumpster diver for Jesus, I am just the one of the most gifted dumpster divers for Jesus. In fact, I serve up on a regular basis the finest cuisine in poo-poo platter that you could possibly imagine. Strangest theology you can ever come up with. And unfortunately, you know what's funny? Here's the weird part. Okay. <clears throat> Sticking with the metaphor about being a dumpster diver for Jesus, um, folks, uh, here's the deal: the stuff that I used to have to dump into the diet, you know, dump, 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 in, jump, <laughs> dump into the diet. Ah, you know what? What? what how's that happen? It is, is it that that the brain gets ahead of my tongue? The two become disconnected. 
Is it just that I'm growing old? I, you know, I find that the older I get, <laughs> that sometimes it's actually harder to take the things that I hear inside of my brain and make them work through the, my through my vocal cords. Yeah. Anyway, what what well, the point I was making is is that the things I used to have to jump into the dumpsters for to pull out and say, "Ooh, look what I found." The, yeah, that trash, it's no longer in the dumpsters. It's actually being served at the counter at many churches. Yeah, it's, yuck, it's disgusting. Anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I got some email that I would like to uh, go through today. Uh, I, you know, horribly, tragically, terribly behind on my emails. But I, there's a few of them that I thought worth passing along today, and I will do that. And uh, then what we'll do is we'll... um. Check in with uh, how things are going with Stephen Furtick's new book. Did you hear that uh, Carrie Shook at Fellowship of the Woodlands is going to be preaching a sermon series on Stephen Furtick's new book, Sun Stand Still? Yeah, it's true. And uh, <laughs> and uh, so I just thought I'd pass that along. But, you know, I just, you know, <clears throat> like I said, the stuff that I used to have to jump into the dumpster for is now being served at the counter in a lot of churches. Anyway, um, uh, Stephen Furtick recently, I mean, like recently, recently appeared, uh, like so recently, like it showed up today recently on the uh, Lisa uh, Turk uh, Turkest show. It's a it's a women's Bible study type program that's uh, associated with a blog, and so uh, we're going to be listening into Stephen Furtick's appearance with uh, Lisa uh, Turkest. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> I'll point some things out that are, uh, you know, that need to be pointed out along the way because, <laughs> well, they need to be pointed out. And then, uh, have I mentioned the fact that, uh, I, I think that there's something terribly, seriously, uh, very tragically wrong, uh, with the ideas, uh, and theology being uh, put out there by Leonard Sweet? Uh yeah, we I spent a little bit of time going, you know, you know, spending a little bit of time with some of the ideas in the Jesus Manifesto between yeah, that was written by Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola. Well, Leonard Sweet's uh, latest book is entitled Nudge, and uh, he, uh, Leonard Sweet m- recently appeared on the Ooze TV, um, and to discuss this book. Nudge. It's all about evangelism, apparently. And uh, here's the subhead to this. Um, see if you already think that there might be a <clears throat> biblical slash theological problem. Here we go. Are you ready? Here's the subhead. <clears throat> Awakening each other to the God who's already there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, we're going to be spending a little bit of time in the book today and also listening to the audio from um uh, f- from Leonard Sweet's appearance on um Spencer Burke's the ooze.tv and then we're gonna, we have uh, two good sermons I'm going to be reviewing today we're going to be doing a twin spin from a pastor I have never reviewed before uh who I was recently turned on to uh, by Todd Wilkin of issues etc pastor's name is Charles St. Ange St. Ange, uh, he's the associate pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who are in the vast wasteland of uh, biblical preaching known as Houston, I mean, you you have such fine preachers there. (laughs) 
that's, you know, Joel Osteen. If, if you're tired of sermons that teach you how to divine uh, whether or not God's speaking to you what, uh, when a wind, uh, birdie lands on your window, uh, if you're looking for a, a church that actually preaches long gospel, sin and grace, and ex- does expository Bible preaching, yeah, Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, this be the church you want to look into. Anyway, at least one of them. And uh, so we're we're going to be doing a Charles St. Ange twin spin. Uh, and uh, we're going to be listening to his uh, sermon that he gave uh, on the uh, on Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62, and Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And you're sitting there going, hey, wait a second. Um, what's the name of the sermon series? Um, uh, well... I guess you could technically say the sermon series is entitled The Church Season of Pentecost. Yeah, because, you know, so, yeah, and uh, what's the life tip or principle? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, hear the sermons. You're going to hear law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, Christ and him crucified. Yeah, anyway, so, and then, oh, there's one other thing I want to get to today. Oh, I hope I have time to do this. There, somebody emailed me the link to a very interesting uh, article, and um, yeah, let me see if I can find this. Hang on a second here. I gotta go into my email program, and you're thinking, um, okay, yeah, here we go, here we go. Uh, preaching to the exhausted. Oh, this is amazing. In fact, hang on a second here. Looking at my, uh, looking at what I want to do here. I'm making an executive decision. Yeah, because this email came in. Uh, uh, I, I got to this email just before I was able to uh, get in the studio today. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sa- oh, I apologize. I'm going to save email until tomorrow. I'm going to read this article that I think is amazing. Uh, we're going to uh, tune in, find out what's going on with Stephen Furtick, uh, check out what is going wrong with um, <clears throat> Leonard Sweet's idea about evangelism, and then we'll do the uh, uh, Charles St. Ange twin spin. So I'll save email for tomorrow. I apologize. If you were looking forward to email, I do apologize. But, you know, I I do have executive decision-making um, <clears throat> authority here at Fighting for the Faith. And I just made, a you know, an, an executive decision because, you know, I can. <clears throat> and I just feel so powerful when I flex that executive decision-making muscle. I don't get to make a lot of decisions. Let's just put it that way. Anyway, so moving along, let's dive into the program proper. And uh, trust me when I tell you, you're going to uh, uh, be thankful for this. Uh, This, by the way, the name of this article is uh, uh, "Preaching to the Spiritually Exhausted," written by a gentleman by the name of Pastor Alan Kraft, K R A F T. Um, I don't know who this man is. I don't know what denomination he is. So, I, you know, I don't know if he has any spooky, scary doctrines that he holds to, you know, uh, in other regards. I just, I don't know. But reading this article, somehow I don't think that uh, it's a stretch to say that um, he's probably uh, somebody that we can embrace as a Christian brother and not have too many things to worry about. Anyway, uh, Pastor Alan Kraft writes in his article entitled Preaching to the spiritually exhausted. He says, I remember receiving a letter a few years ago from one of the leaders in our church's youth ministry. Darren was an outstanding, mature, godly young man, and yet in his letter he informed me of his recent decision to renounce Christianity. And what was his reason? 
Well, while he had a few fairly common theological questions and doubts, the root, it, the root issue was much deeper than all of that. He was spiritually exhausted. Oh, have I been here. He had spent years doing all the Christ, all the things Christians are supposed to do and yet was not experiencing any real change. He felt that he, his only option was to renounce his faith. How many of the people that listen to our teaching every week are very much like Darren, sincerely wanting to follow God yet growing tired of trying? Some are perhaps unaware of their exhaustion as they continue on a treadmill of spiritual busyness. Others carry a deep sense of failure. Everyone else seems to be getting this. Why is this not working for me? The ultimate irony is that we as pastors and teachers often contribute to their state of spiritual fatigue. It's nothing intentional. We simply want to help apply God's word to their lives. So we fill every sermon with good biblical principles, four strategies to improve your prayer life, five keys to a healthy marriage, three ways to be more loving, etc., etc. All of this is very helpful information, but imagine the long-term impact in a person's soul when they know they haven't come close to mastering last week's application points and then are getting three more to add to their list. Well, what, you know, what's Rick Warren's solution? Are you ready? Rick Warren's solution, you all, you're teaching them too much. Yeah, you, you, you got to stop. No, no, don't give them any more Bible yeah, until they've mastered that material. Yeah, you're giving them too much Bible. That's what Rick Warren says. He's fully aware of this uh, particular problem, and his solution, cut back on the Bible intake. <clears throat> now, while this kind of principle centered preaching seems to resonate with so many people, it actually can lead to two equally dangerous paths. One path is spiritual pride. Those who are working hard to keep these lists feel really good about themselves. They feel close to God because of how well they are doing. Sort of like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who rejoiced in his own moral goodness and despised the sinner praying next to him. Yep. How convenient that pride and self-centeredness weren't on his list. If we as pastors are not careful, we can end up creating a culture filled with Pharisees, good, moral people who are striving to do the right thing, yet blind to their own real need. The other dangerous path toward which principle-centered preaching can direct people is the path of disillusionment, disillusionment and despair. Each week, those in our church hear more things they are supposed to be doing, good spiritual Christian things, and they know uh, and they know deep down that they can't do it. They've tried to change. They've knelt at the altar, making promises and commitments and resolutions, but each time the end result is the same. No change except for the added guilt and shame. Now, some resolve to try harder, while others give up altogether. So what's the answer? How can we as pastors and teachers help people avoid the trappings of the principle-focused path? How are we to preach to the spiritually exhausted? The answer may surprise you. Are you ready? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel, not just to the lost, but to the found. Often we as pastors see the gospel as the entry point into Christianity. 
We preach the gospel to lost people, but we fail to realize that the saved need the gospel just as desperately. The gospel is not simply the starting line for Christianity. It's the race itself. See how Paul talks about the gospel in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, or Romans chapter 1, verse 15. If this were the case, how does one go about preaching the gospel to those who have already embraced it? The answer is really simple. Preach repentance and faith as continual activities rather than as a one-time initial response to the gospel. The mistake we often make is in not realizing that repentance and faith are critical aspects of a person's ongoing experience with Christ. Oh, this is a great article. Often we as pastors shy away from using repent the repentance word too frequently. We realize that many Christians view it as an oppressive, negative thing or something that we do when we really mess up. Part of our role as pastors and teachers is to help people understand that repentance is anything but oppressive. Instead, it's life-giving. When Jesus began his ministry of preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he laid a crucial foundation with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guess what he's talking about? Repentance. To be poor in spirit is to see the depth of our brokenness, to see the depth of our need. This is like the other beat, uh, this is this like the other beatitudes is not a one-time event, but rather a continual response. When we as believers truly understand the gospel, it forces us to face the truth that we are a lot more sinful than we realize. When God began to open my eyes to see the gospel in this new way, he started by showing me how I needed it, even in the most spiritual of activities. I remember one Sunday afternoon reflecting on the morning worship services and feeling really good about my message, having heard lots of positive comments from people who were there. As I was enjoying those reflections, I started to think about specific people in our church who weren't there that morning. Some key leaders who I thought really needed to hear that message. I found myself getting angry. Righteous anger, of course. In the midst of all of this, I sensed God asking me a question. Alan, is this anger really about me and my glory, or is it about you and your desire to have people hear your great message? Now, I'm not going to get into the theology of him thinking he's hearing directly from God. Maybe he did, because in this particular case, the message from God, well, it revealed his sin. His sin and his unbelief. Ouch, that hurt. I saw with, a pain, with painful clarity how my motives, even in preaching, were for my own glory rather than God's. This is us. We need the gospel every moment of every day because our flesh instinctively is drawn toward self-absorption and idolatry. In light of this, one of our key tasks as teachers is in helping all of our people see the depth of their need for Christ. We all need our eyes open to see how self-absorbed and self-centered we truly are. How often we look for life in all sorts of things rather than God. 
part of our problem with repentance is how we define sin. If we talk about sin as doing bad things, our people will freely acknowledge that they are not perfect, but at the same time, they will feel that they are doing pretty well. However, when we define sin according to the first commandment, loving God with all of our being, suddenly we realize that we have a big problem with sin. It permeates all that we do. How often are we as Christians trying to find life and meaning and significance and security in things other than God? How often are we looking uh, looking to shopping or our 401k or our attractiveness or our reputation or our success as the thing from which we find ultimate joy and meaning? When we begin talking about sin in this way, suddenly the room gets quiet. People begin seeing that sin is so much more than doing bad things. It includes the multitude of the ways we replace God with self as the center of our lives. The great thing about defining sin in this way is that I can always find lots of personal examples to share in messages, which fosters an atmosphere where it's okay to admit that you're broken. That goes a long way in creating a culture of continual repentance. Now, some of you are perhaps envisioning this renewed emphasis on repentance as a real downer, a guaranteed way to decrease the size of your congregation. That's quite an admission on his part, by the way. Actually, the opposite is the case. When people begin seeing the depth of their brokenness, it opens a door for something absolutely amazing, the presence of Christ filling their brokenness. This is the second half of the gospel we proclaim, repentance and faith. I used to preach about faith only when talking about prayer or how to endure times of difficulty. One day I was reading Romans one seventeen, and the light bulb came on. Paul says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. I had to read that verse literally dozens of times, and I had never really seen the last four words. From first to last. Yeah, that's right. The entire Christian life is about faith. We are to live by faith. In other words, we are to continually place our trust in Christ alone. This is where the brokenness of repentance becomes so important. If a person doesn't see the depth of their sinfulness and need, how deeply will they live their lives in dependence upon Christ? When our preaching is primarily focused on principles and application points, it's easy for people to both lose sight of their need for a Savior as well as what an incredible Savior He really is. The focus is on the follow, and following the principles rather than embracing a person. One leads to self-sufficiency while the other to Christ-sufficiency. I think, <laughs> Pastor Kraft, well said, yes, once we begin to grasp the, that this continual repentance and faith message, we begin seeing it everywhere in the New Testament. Jesus said in John seven thirty seven, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's the gospel. If someone doesn't admit they're thirsty, they won't run to Jesus for help. Paul said in 2 Corinthians twelve ten, For when I am weak, then I am strong. In his weakness... He more fully experienced God's power. In Romans 7, 24 through 25, after being brutally honest about his own brokenness, Paul declares, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body of, of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
In each of these places, as well as dozens of others, including Galatians 2.20, Matthew 11.28.30, the spiritual life is described as being lived in continual repentance and faith. As we see the depth of our need, we can more fully embrace Christ in that moment. Paul's words at the end of his life are incredibly eye-opening. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Yeah, that's right. Those, those words were penned by the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. Notice he doesn't say, I was the worst, but now I'm beyond all that now. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. Present tense. Paul's lifelong path of spiritual maturity involved him seeing with increasingly with increasing clarity the depth of his need for mercy which made him more in love with his savior. All of this means that our pre- that in our preaching we have the wonderful privilege of continually encouraging people to embrace these two life-giving truths of the gospel. We are far more sinful than we realize, and we have a Savior who is far more wonderful than we have ever dreamed. Every message we give should be in some way, should in some way highlight these two realities. We want to help people see with greater clarity to the depth of their brokenness and the glorious sufficiency of their Savior. Often our basic approach to biblical preaching is a three-step model. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what it means. Now go and do it. In this approach, the climax of the sermon is giving people a challenge to try hard to do what God wants them to do, which actually ends up driving them further from the gospel. Christianity becomes then a list of things to do in order to please God. What might it look like to put the gospel into this paradigm? It is actually quite simple to do. In step three, after showing people how they should live, we then remind them of their own inability to do this. Our self-absorption and idolatry make this impossible, which then leads to the fourth, uh, fourth step, proclaiming Jesus as our solution. In the midst of our inadequacy, we can look to one who is adequate. In the midst of our weakness, we can look to his strength. So now our basic approach should be as follows. Number one, here's what the Bible says. Number two, here's what it means. Number three, now go do it, but you can't. Number four, look to your incredible Savior who longs to live his life through you. Faith. In each message, no matter what the specific passage or topic we preach, the gospel in this way, we can't we can expose brokenness and point people toward their Savior, while the first approach only adds to the exhaustion of the hearers. This second approach is music to their souls. They no longer have to continue on the treadmill of performance trying to make God smile. They no longer have to pretend that they are doing better than they really are. Instead, they can admit their weakness and more fully embrace the beauty of their Savior. It really is. Good news. <laughs> Fantastic article. Well said. And to that I say amen and amen. I'm so thankful that God has opened the eyes of Pastor Kraft and shown him that preaching on biblical principles, go and do it, 
ends up making people who are exhausted. It may bring them to the point of despair and wanting to renounce Christianity. But in reality, they're not renouncing Christianity. They're just confessing that they can't do it and that they don't. They still need good news. All right, we're up on our first break. We're going to run a little long today on our first segment, you know, first hour. It's not really going to be like the first hour. It's going to be like an hour and 15. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning, is your pastor only preaching biblical principles? 
you know, opening up God's word, telling you what you mean, what it means, and then says, go do it, and doesn't even mention Christ and the cross? You might be suffering from spiritual exhaustion. You need to hear the gospel. And the good news is you can hear it here. This is one of the places I, I make a point of telling you about Jesus. And, yeah, it's, you know, the, that cross thing, you know, the forgiveness of sins. It's for you, even if you've been a Christian for all your life. Yeah, Christ died for your sins, all of them. He knows you're not keeping his law. The purpose of the law is to show you your need for a Savior and show you what a wonderful Savior you have. All right, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your partnering with us financially in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along here. You know, I don't have a uh, I don't have a theme music for Stephen Furtick. I'm not sure if he's going to be making enough regular appearances on the program to warrant me coming up with special theme music for him, like I have for Perry Noble. And uh, and since I've been talking about Rick Warren more and more, I'm thinking Chubby Checkers. Uh, Come on, baby, let's do the twist. That would be an appropriate uh, segue when I'm talking about Rick Warren. But anyway, uh, here is um, the uh, latest installment of the Lisa Turkist uh, in, uh, program on YouTube. And it's, uh, anyway, you'll catch what's going on. Stephen Furtick is there talking about Sunstand Still Prayers. And bless Lisa's heart, she asks him kind of a practical question. And well, hi, girls. I'm so we'll see how he does to be coming to you today. From now, if you're a guy and you're listening to the podcast, don't worry. I've you know, it's okay for us to be here. There's the there. Her website is not completely covered in pink. But, yeah, you know what I mean. ...you today from the swanky digs at a church in my hometown, Charlotte, North Carolina, called Elevation Church. Now, you've heard me talk before about this great book, Sun Stand Still by Pastor Stephen Furtick. Well, I have such a surprise for you today. I actually have talked Stephen Furtick into coming onto this blog report live. So I'm going to ask him a couple questions, and I thought you guys might want to take a peek into our conversation. So without any further ado, here is Stephen Furtick. Hi, ladies. It's great to be with you today. Thank now, you. I wrote a Proverbs 31 devotion today called um, Impossible Prayers or Praying for the Impossible. And it's a story about my sister who I prayed for for years. And that impossible prayer finally got answered, but it took so long. And I have to say, there were times when I was praying for her that um, I, I kind of had these little inklings of why bother? I mean, it's just not being answered. Is there anything personally that you have prayed for that you haven't seen the answer? Because I think a lot of us probably have some of those prayers. We prayed a long time and there, no answer has come. So Okay, now, this is a great practical question from somebody. I don't, I, I don't know if Lisa has a, you know, any deep theological training or not. But she's just, you know, one of the, your your average, you know, evangelical housewife type folks who've 
who've decided to you know write books and have a blog and you know and do a, a, a YouTube video site kind of thing. And she, you know, this is a great question. Okay, uh, here we're supposed to pray the impossible. We're supposed to have audacious faith. You know, <clears throat> and uh, and then she she said, "Well, I've had one of these impossible things," which kind of leads to the question: Is how are you defining the word impossible? Okay, uh, you, you know, for instance, you know, I you know I've got some relatives that are close, you know, to me and my family. Well, they're not Christians, and I've been praying for them for years. Is is it really impossible? Is that an impossibility for them to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? <laughs> to repent and have faith in Jesus? I mean, is that impossible? No, it's not. Well, with them it is, but with God it's not. So, I mean, um, is that really, the, is that an impossible thing, you know? You understand what I'm saying? I mean, what are we talking about when we're talking about impossible prayers? But then she asked the obvious question, what happens if, the, well, you know, there's no answer? You know, I, I think the simple solution would be, well, um, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, watch this, <clears throat> we pray in the Lord's Prayer. You, you know that dry, dusty prayer that that uh, people make fun of. Oh, that can't possibly be a holy prayer. It can't possibly come from the heart because people know it by rote memory. Yeah, the one where Jesus said, and when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Did you hear it? Thy will be done. See, when we pray, we pray for God's will to be done. We come to God with a posture of he is God. He is our Father. He is sovereign. He is Lord. And we pray that his will be done. Well, if we're praying for God's will to be done, then if you've been praying for the impossible and um, while the impossible hasn't been happening, um, I think it's safe to conclude that God, his will being done, said, no. (laughs) (laughs) There's not much speculation needed here. (laughs) I mean, mean, seriously, I mean, when you approach prayer, you know, I'm going to pray for the impossible— um, I, do you come to prayer with the expectation that whatever you ask God for, he's supposed to give you? Yeah, I love Dr. Walter Martin, the late Dr. Walter Martin, the way he talked about this. He says, come on, think about this. You know, don't you remember when you were in high school and you saw her? You know, her, that beautiful, beautiful flower of budding teenage womanhood. And you just knew that she was supposed to be the one you were going to marry. And so you pray, Oh, Lord, please let me marry her. <laughs> and this is before you even, you know, had had the like the first conversation with her, you know. And so... You turn into a stalker and you tra- and you follow her to her locker so that you can talk to her. And when she finally opens her mouth and you guys start talking and you strike up a friendship, you realize, I ain't got nothing in common with her. 
God's uh, ah, scratch that prayer. No, no, stop. No, 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 no. I, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Um. Don't worry. Yeah, God knew. <laughs> so when we pray, we pray as the Lord has taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's right. Christians don't end their prayers with, and Lord, let your will be done. They begin their prayers with that as the Lord has taught us to pray. That being the case, so when we approach the throne of heaven with our petitions and we pray for impossible circumstances, we understand that God is sovereign and he can say, no. Yeah, it's perfectly within the character of God to say, no, that's not my will. Okay. Now, with that in mind, let's continue with the interview and the questions on the table. What do you do, Pastor Furtick? You know, because you've written this amazing book called Sun Stand Still, and you're teaching us how to have audacious faith. Wait till you hear his answer. So what would you say to that, and how have you dealt with impossible prayers that you are still having audacious faith, but they're not being answered? Oh, so many prayers that I've prayed that either weren't answered or were answered in a completely different way than I thought they'd be answered, or... You mean like no? Maybe um, years go by and I almost forget I ever prayed them, and then the answer comes. Um, I think it's very easy to think about faith in terms of a commodity, where if we put this much faith in the account toward this specific situation... Then- okay, I want, <laughs> I've got to back this up. I want you to listen to this, Okay. Here, he, Pastor Furtick just said, it's really easy to turn faith into a commodity. Okay, watch what he says. This is like almost surreal doublespeak. Watch. Where if we put this much faith in the account toward this specific situation, then we're going to see this result. So if I pray for my house to sell um, and it doesn't sell within 12 months and I'm completely financially stressed and maxed because of that, Uh, Either I didn't pray right, or I didn't believe right, or I'm out of the will of God, or God doesn't love me. And God gave me this statement the other day. What? (laughs) Whoa, 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 huh? So, okay, let me see if I got this right. You you got the impossible, you prayed the impossible, and well, the impossible hasn't happened. And, uh, and, and, well, we don't want to turn faith into a commodity, that's for sure. Yeah, that's what he said. But God gave him this word the other day. So what you're about to hear from Pastor Stephen Furtick, extra biblical information that's not recorded for us in Scripture, but that God gave directly to him. Here we go. Um, That there is a thing called unanswered prayer, or there are times when he says no to our prayers, Um, but there's never such a thing as wasted faith. So God revealed to you, Stephen, that there's no such thing as wasted faith. Isn't that turning faith into a commodity? And when we believe God for a situation, whether or not that specific situation changes, God takes our faith and he either uses the faith that we're believing him with to do something inside of us to develop character 
Oh, so so let me see. Okay, so the faith that we used. Okay, so so I've got this. Uh, I've built up an audacious faith, and so I've learned how to pray sun stand still prayers for the most impossible of circumstances. And well, you know, wouldn't you know it? The things that the impossible things I'm praying for. Well, they're not uh, coming. Well, they're not happening. Apparently, God is saying, "Well, no." But don't worry. Don't no. Don't worry. See all that oh, that audacious faith that you've built up. Oh, good news. So the good, the audacious faith that you use to pray the impossible prayer, impossible prayer, God can then take that faith and then apply it to something different in your life. That's what he just said. For the next thing he wants to do, or sometimes I believe God will take faith that we're applying toward a certain situation and say, I'm not going to answer that prayer right now. because Isn't this turning faith into a commodity? Because I know some things that you don't know, and I understand some things you don't understand, and I have a plan that you can't fully comprehend. But what I am going to do is honor your faith, and I'm going to work in your life in other ways, and one day you'll understand it. One day you may, you may see fully, you may see you know, the, the panorama of, of what I'm doing, but I will never waste your faith. Like my mom prayed for my dad for a couple of decades. And I tell the story in the book about how my dad came to Christ. And I relate so much with what you're sharing about your sister because the first audacious prayer I ever prayed was that God would save my dad. He was an alcoholic. His dad killed himself on my dad's eighth birthday. That was my dad's eighth birthday present to find his dad dead. Uh, Tremendous addictions in his life. Dropped out of school in the eighth grade. And I looked at him one day and I said, God's about to change your life, dad. And he's going to turn your world upside down. And my dad was so far gone from God at that point that he, he told me later he actually felt sorry for me in that situation because he knew I had my hopes up. I'm just a 16-year-old kid, fresh, freshly saved on fire for God, telling my dad that God was going to change his life. And you know, it was about a year and a half, two years after that, that I, that I got the opportunity to lead my dad to Christ after I preached a sermon at my home church. And, uh, and he how came old were you? to the altar, 18 years old. That is amazing. Freshman year in college, traveling with this little ministry team. I, I mean, and, it's, it's, you know, as I, it's just like having the sun stand still. Look back on that. I think about all of the years that my mom, who loves the Lord and who was a Methodist minister's daughter, prayed for my dad mm-hmm. and stood with my dad and didn't believe in divorce and wouldn't give up on him. And I just keep on. Yeah, I, I don't see how this story actually kind of makes your point how. OK, so the, remember the, 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 the topic here. You pray. God says no. But God then takes your faith and redirects it towards something else. Yeah, but again, God revealed that to you. But the story you're telling doesn't actually um, that's not an example of that. Yeah. Um, okay. Coming back to this concept that even when it seems like God isn't answering your prayer, he's never wasting your faith. And I have other friends and family. <laughs> so when God isn't answering your prayer, he isn't wasting your faith. Whew. Yeah, because, you know, you know how precious of a commodity that faith stuff is. Yeah, I mean, it's good that God doesn't waste it. Yeah, it's 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 you could probably bottle it and sell it by the barrel for more for more than oil, you know. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> moving along. 
I wonder if this would be like the um, the right segue for a Leonard Sweet segment. The Walrus and the Carpenter. Or the story of the Curious Oysters. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all its might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was... The of the night. Oh, the time has come, the walrus said, to talk of other things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. Kalu, kale, no work today. We're cabbages and kings. Yeah, I, I'm just toying with the idea there. Yeah, I, I think it might be appropriate just because of the... Um, <clears throat> Weird stuff that we're about to hear. Um, So uh, Leonard Sweet's latest book, it's no longer the Jesus Manifesto, it's entitled Nudge. And uh, Nudge, uh, David C. Cook um, is the publisher, and this book recently came out. And it's supposedly about, well, um, evangelism. But um, before I give you a sample reading from the book Nudge, um, I would like to play for you some audio from a recent video posted on the ooze.tv with Spencer Burke and Leonard Sweet discussing Nudge, which is apparently about, well, did I mention evangelism? L- listen carefully, see if you can make heads or tails of this. Welcome to news.tv. My name is Spencer Burke, your host for Think Forward. Today I'm joined with Leonard Sweet out here on the north end of Orcas Island. Orcas Island. What a beautiful place. <laughs> this, is, this is very tough. I enjoyed my night last night. It's been fun having our conversations, and I'm very excited to hear a little bit more about Nudge. Nudge. Yeah. It's my attempt to um, to really think about evangelism as, as part of uh, not just a separate segment. I mean, there's nowhere that Paul ever says, you know, do the task of evangelism. Mm-hmm. You know, that's funny that you would use those words. Because um, I do remember Paul talking to Timothy about doing... The, uh, hang on a second. Evan- I, I got to look this up in my in my computerized Bible. It's in one of the pastoral epistles. Evangelism, you know. Now I don't know the <clears throat> the location offhand, but um, do the oh, it's do the work of an evangelist. Here it is. Um, let's see here. Second Timothy chapter four verse five. The apostle Paul writing to young pastor Timothy, as for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, let me uh let's see, let's see if we can back this up a smidge here and uh, and see if this makes any sense. I mean, there's nowhere that Paul ever says, you know, do the task of evangelism. Mm-hmm. Evangelism is just part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. Part of what it means to be, be a follower. And so uh, <clears throat> so uh, there's no time where we're supposed to do evangelism. It's Evangelism is just 
part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Yeah, that doesn't even make sense in light of the term evangelist. A you know somebody who's a herald of the good news. An evan yeah. That doesn't even make sense in t- in, t- in light of the word euangelion. It doesn't make any sense at all. But all right, let's continue. In many ways, discipleship and evangelism are one and the same thing. But how do we understand that? And so, um, this is my nudge is the metaphor that yeah. I'm using to to awake. I call it, the subtitle is awakening each other to the God who's already there. Yeah. And I, I don't use this quote in the book, but mm-hmm. uh, the founder of my tribe, somebody named John Wesley. Yeah. And he had a he had a saying uh, that really revolutionized the whole culture of England in the in the 18th century. And that was, uh, what he said is, go and see the poor in their hovels, for Jesus is already there, and he will be with you. Mm -hmm. Didn't I say it all? Yeah. Uh, Pastor Charmley, um, since you know uh, John uh, Wesley so well, um, something tells me he's taken this Wesley quote out of context and misapplied it. Because the one thing I know about the history of Wesley is that that man was an evangelist. That boy preached the gospel. Wesley was, I mean, I, even in my Lutheran circles, Wesley is well respected uh, when it comes to preaching the gospel and doing the work of an evangelist. So something tells me that John Wesley um, didn't intend for this quote that um, <clears throat> Leonard Sweet just gave to be used as a metaphor for um, evangelism. I just, I'm, let, let, let's continue. Oh, and, you know, go out into the world because Jesus is already there and he will be with you. So the, he called this prevenient grace. Calvin called it the common grace. I mean, you you got a lot of different ways of talking about it, but the notion. So, okay, yeah, I, okay, so prevenient grace and common grace, gen, you know, this idea, um, Prevenient grace is not the gospel. It just basically means that God is in the world supplying the needs of even those who are dead in trespasses and sins, the unrighteous. God causes the rain to fall on the just and unjust alike. That's prevenient grace. I mean, why would you take the concept of prevenient grace and somehow turn that into a metaphor or something that we need to understand in light of the gospel or evangelism? This this seems like a complete misapplication of the concept of prevenient grace. But then again, Leonard Sweet is postmodern. So words, definitions, categories, they don't have any fixed focus or meaning. They can get shuffled around at will. So apparently that's what's going on. Let's see what what happens next. Is that I don't take Jesus anywhere. Right. I mean, that's really kind of arrogant. The idea that yeah. he didn't yeah. show up and yeah. till I arrived. Right. Um, no, but he is already there, and I'm just my the basic task for me is to find out what he's doing, to read the signs yeah. of what he's up to, so that I can join him in what he's already yeah. already doing. What? I. What? <laughs> wow uh that's the um that is just so convoluted so let me see if i got this straight we have a, we, we there's a biblical teaching there's a biblical doctrine 
I mean, this it it's, goes by a couple of names. One of them is general grace or prevenient grace. It's this idea that God is at work even in you know in the world to you know, supply the needs. You know, God causes the sun to rise on sinners and saint alike. That's this idea of prevenient grace. And so from that, I'm supposed to get the idea that I'm supposed that since God's already at work in the world, when it comes to evangelism, my job is to go and kind of you know, stop and listen and pay attention to what God is already doing in the life of a pagan person and, and then, you know, help God get that done. That's not evangelism, sir. Uh, that's something really kind of creepy and weird. Uh, let's continue. Well, and it seems as if in the past evangelism and discipleship have been kind of segmented or even divorced from each other. Yeah, you can't. I mean, what I'm trying to do is to say we can't do that. And so it's a, I call it an apple, not an orange approach to evangelism. Mm-hmm. You know, an orange, you come to these segments and you, you peel it and you take it apart. And that's what we've done to everything. We've done it to the Bible, chapter and verse. We've done it to theology, all those ologies, ecclesiology, soteriology, pneumatology, eschatology. But this is an attempt to really see um, what it just means to let Jesus live his resurrection life in and through you. And in that, um, then you are recognizing him, recognizing, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. recognizing him and what he's doing and, uh, and joining him and what he's, what he's already up to. Well, maybe. Right. So evangelism is recognizing what God is up to and then joining him in doing it. Um, do you know of any, um, New Testament apostle that approached, quote, evangelism in this way. Yeah, you know, the apostle Peter showing up, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the house of Cornelius. Well, I'm here to rec- recognize what God is already doing in your midst, Cornelius. So what, um, what, what is he doing? Because I, I need to join him in, in doing that. Or Paul, you know, ascending Mars Hill there in Athens. And men of Athens, I, I'm here to recognize what God is already doing in your midst. Because he's already here, and I, I want to join with God in what he's doing in your life. Yeah, if uh, I come to the distinct uh, conclusion that if the apostles handled the evangelism with this approach... That uh, while the Roman Empire would still, we there would be a lot of people still worshiping the Roman gods. I just, you know, I'm saying. Instead of us trying to create the event evangelism, it's to see where it's already happening. Right. I mean, that's a yeah. But there, it takes a certain humility, doesn't yeah. it, to yeah. <laughs> engage humility? Uh, that's not the word I'd use. God rather than try to have God come engage us. Yeah, and and it also, but but there is a there is a warning here, and that that is uh, in the Hippocratic oath. The first rule number one is do no harm. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, that, that's why yeah. the old evangelism was kind of shut up and listen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, old evangelism, shut up and listen. I have good news to proclaim to you. I don't know about the shut up and listen part. It was more like, "Hey, hey, I got great news. You got to hear this." I, I don't, I don't remember the shut up and listen part. 
But it was, hey, I do have good news to proclaim. Here's the good news. Are you ready? Ta-da! Christ died on the cross for your sins. Was raised again on the third day for your justification. He's King of kings and Lord of lords and died for all of your sins. Repent and be forgiven. Believe the good news. Yeah, the yeah, just if you're confused about this, go back to the sermon I reviewed on Monday by Steve Lawson. Yeah, you'll you'll get the biblical categories rather quickly. And uh, if you compare what Steve Lawson was showing us from God's Word to what um, <clears throat> Leonard Sweet has come up with here. Uh, by the way, did you notice how we got here? Um, yeah, Leonard Sweet began with an out-of-context John Wesley quote that had to do with prevenient grace, misapplied it to evangelism, and now says that this is really what we need to do, and it's a whole new way of doing evangelism. In other words, this is evangelism without evangelism. Yeah. This is evangelism without the whole good news thing to be proclaimed. You know, this is just going and finding out what God's already doing, and then, you know, joining with God in, in what he's doing. That's not evangelism. In, uh, no, go and tell. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying shut up and listen. I'm saying, no, no, you better not harm. The worst thing you can do is harm what the Holy Spirit is doing. Yeah. Because um, the Holy Spirit's already up to something. Yeah. So you don't go in there and just, I'm going to hear to show and tell mm. what God's doing in my life. No, 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 no. I shut up and listen to what the Spirit is doing in your life. So that I can understand and discern, which yeah. is a, you know, really means hear yeah. um, what the Spirit is up to. So there's a lot of listening, yeah. hearing. Um, there's a lot of um, kind of standing under. There's no understanding without standing under. Mm-hmm. So you're... <laughs> there's no understanding without standing under. Whew. Yeah. That one just blew my brains out. Wow. Standing under. And then... Um, nudging, right? Nudging people. Well, don't yeah, we sometimes. Yeah. Under- yeah, you know, it's so funny because um, you, do you know that Jesus is the one who taught the apostles how to do evangelism? It's true. Yeah. Um, you don't believe me? Go to the um, go to the Gospels, uh, where he commissions the seventy and you know sends them out two by two. Yeah, see, all of those were kind of like dry runs. Jesus was teaching them how he wants the gospel proclaimed. Yeah, that whole proclaim the good news thing, that's Jesus' model. That's the Jesus model for evangelism. The Leonard Sweet model, you know, you you, you have to take a Hippocratic oath. You know, you, you don't want to do any harm. So what you're going to do is you're going to show up at like, you know, in the life of a pagan person with the understanding that the Holy Spirit's already at work. And so you need to kind of listen and, you know, figure out what God's doing and join with him on that so that you don't disrupt that because you don't want to do any harm. And this is not a, a, a shut up and listen approach. This is, a, you know, a go and listen approach. Yeah. Boy, you know, here's the funny thing is, is that, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to be sitting there going, wow, man, this is like the coolest thing ever. And I'm sitting there going, uh, that's not what Jesus did when he taught people how to do evangelism. In fact, the thing he was taking swipes at is the very thing that <clears throat> Jesus told his apostles to do. Let me read a little bit from Nudge, chapter one. <clears throat> the name of chapter one is... Pay attention, every bush is burning. Brace yourself, this 
book is set to revolutionize your understanding of evangelism. Well, wow, it's a revolution. You know, I, I, not, just I you know don't mean to quibble with words. I understand that he's a postmodern and everything, but um, if I told you, um, brace yourself. There's a revolution that's broken out in Washington D.C. And I just kind of left it at that. You might think, oh, no, somebody's, uh, you know, that somebody has launched a coup against the U.S. government. There's a revolution. It makes you wonder. <clears throat> anyway, uh, the uh, uh, revolution from the Latin uh, revolvere uh, means a fundamental change. The revolution stands to shake the very roots of your faith, rattle the range of your mission, and roll the very limits of your freedom. Wait a minute, you say, there's a lot about me in that paragraph. I thought evangelism is about reaching out to others. Remember, a fundamental change? I think evangelism changes me as much as anybody. Hmm. A friar returned to his monastery after an Ignatian 30-day uh, retreat. Over granola the next morning, he was interrogated by a grump, by grumpy old member of the community who complained, quote, We've been working like slaves while you've been sw swanning around doing nothing. And look at you. You don't look any different. You're quite right. I probably don't, was the reply, but you do. Okay. Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Luke are these. Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But a biblical understanding of repentance is not red-faced anger at other people's sins, but red-faced embarrassment at my own brokenness and complicity in the evils and injustices of the world. Okay, kind of a liberal view of sin. All right, I'll bite for a minute here. So proclaiming repentance is as much about reminding me of my waywardness as it is about setting other people straight. Okay, when I'm engaging with people of other religious faiths, I find myself unable to commit to their conclusions or agree with their assessments. Yet, at the same time, I come away encouraged by the spiritual truths found in their traditions, thrilled by new insights into my own faith, and more passionate than ever about being a disciple of Jesus. The truth is illuminated and elongated in my mind, and my presuppositions and myopic perspectives are challenged and corrected in the process. Anything less would not be a conversation and would not imply that truth is a, is a proposition and not Christ. <clears throat> Here's a quote from the Archbishop of Canterbury. To be a real agent of God, to connect with the neighbor, each of us needs to know the truth about himself or herself. I believe the lifeblood of evangelism is not propositions, but prepositions. For God to do something through us, God must do something in us. If we are not always evangelizing ourselves, we have no business evangelizing others. In fact, it is usually, a, it is usually as God's grace courses through us to someone else that we become aware of God's love in, uh, in and for us. Evangelism is an invitation for broken people together to meet the Christ who loves broken people. We are all damaged but loved, crushed, and uh, we are all damaged but loved, crushed but cherished with a divine embrace. When love is the motivation for evangelism, nudging is love in action, and the cracks in our broken vases are where Jesus leaks out first. 
I will define evangelism as nudge and evangelists as nudgers. Evangelism is awakening each other to the God who is already there. Evangelism is nudging people to pay attention to the mission of God in their lives and the necessity of responding to that initiative in ways that birth new realities and the new birth. Huh? God only asks that we uh, that we do what we do best, which is nudge. God takes it from there. The nudging act, the human contact, the meeting of eyes, the sharing of space, the entanglement of words, the sense of bodily interaction is to the soul what blood is to the body. Without nudging, the body cannot reproduce. Well, that, that's some pretty intimate nudging going on there. Um <clears throat> Every person who crosses your threshold today is ripe for nudging. Beware. <laughs> I may not want to be nudged by you. Um, a nudge happens in, in proximity. Even the nudges across the Internet or by phone take place in a proximity relationship. Uh, the integrity of a nudge requires that it be welcomed and that it be reciprocal. The purpose of a nudge is to manifest Christ in a moment of mutual knowing, which benefits both the person being nudged and the nudger. Nudges are not contrived, but are the natural consequence of being with someone in a moment and wishing them to join you in recognizing a God moment. The best nudges culminate in a grunt of mutual recognition. God nudges me because God likes me. I nudge others because I like them. There is an implied caring that comes with nudging. So there you have it. Nudge gently pushing people off their seats more than than it is sitting people down or driving them to their knees. Nudging is more about sowing than reaping. To be clear, nudging encompasses the full range of gardening, from dropping a tiny seed into the ground to loosening the dirt, watering, feeding, fertilizing, protecting, and uh, from predators picking the fruit, and even helping, in Jesus' words, uh, the birds of the air nestle under its shade. But every encounter is aimed not to bring in the sheaves. Nudging aims to bring people less to a decision than to an impression. Not just to an hour of decision, but a lifetime impression of God's presence and the nearness of God's kingdom. In fact, isn't this the essence of sanctified living to make our whole life a un oui vivant, a living yes to the living Christ? <clears throat> this is exactly the opposite of, ignore, of ignoring the need for a decision. Rather, it is, the, it is respecting the reverence, the process, if one looks back on it, by which each of us came to the place of decision, when an impression leads to a hallelujah. Um, <clears throat> by the ultimate answer to that question, who do you say that I am, is for best forthcoming from another question, what's up? Or when translated theologically, what's the I am up to in your life? The... We find the living one in the midst of the living. Um, <clears throat> yeah, this um, deep <clears throat> tome of 300-plus uh, pages of that kind of obtuseness um, is available for only $19 uh, on hard, in hardcover. Why can't we just do what Jesus told us to do? Go and proclaim. Yeah, it, Jesus. It, Paul talks about the foolishness of preaching. Yeah, um, yeah let me find that real quick here. Because, um, yeah, it's the, just listening to um, <clears throat> the nudger here. Um, 
Yeah, uh, Romans chapter 10. I'll start at verse 11. <clears throat> See, let's just compare this nudgy thing that um, Leonard Sweet has concocted and just, you know, compare it to the Apostle Paul who got his theology from Jesus, you know, directly, you know. So I, I, I let's see what he says. I mean, this is far simpler, too. Uh, for the scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Yeah, um I I have no idea what this obtuse nudge uh evangelism theory is of uh, Leonard Sweets even after reading pretty far into his book and listening to him on um Spencer Burke's the TV. Yeah, I I'm just going to go with what the apostle said. It's pretty straightforward. Preach the word preach the good news how are they going to believe in who you know if they haven't heard of him and how are they here without someone preaching and how are they preaching unless they're sent so how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of christ paul doesn't say and go out and remember that god's already out there and uh, what you need to do is you need to uh, ask the person so What's the the I am up to in your life? What's you know and and you know and nudge them and and recognize that you know you you got to recognize the God who's already there, you know, so that you don't do any harm to the Hippocratic oath. Yeah, the, uh, seriously, I I don't think we need the vast majority, probably about ninety eight percent of the so called Christian books that are on the Christian marketplace. We could probably get rid of all of them. They won't be around for very long anyway. And this is so obtuse, I don't think it has any staying power whatsoever. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to be going into our sermon review. We have two good short sermons um, from uh, a pa- uh, an associate pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. You don't want to miss these. They're fantastic. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. 
Sermon review time. Good night. I, I mean, why, how is it that you can take something that's not broken and then break it? I mean, take something that's perfectly simple and then and then turn it into something completely, uh, uh, you know, unmanageably uh, ununderstandable. I, I just don't get it. All right, changing gears. Good sermons coming up. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, that's right, dulce sermons, two, they're short, come to us via Memorial Lutheran Church, Houston, Texas, from the preaching of Pastor Charles St. Ange. Yeah, Ange, O-N-G-E, Ange. First sermon's on Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Second sermon's on Luke chapter 12, 13 through 21. Kill the music here. Sorry about that. I, I like that ukulele stuff. All right, man, I, I'm still reeling from that uh, Leonard Sweet stuff. I mean, seriously, I, I just don't get how you take something so simple as you know, preach the good news, and turn it into oh well. What we really need to do is we need to stop and see what the Holy Spirit's doing so we can nudge people. Anyway. 
I digress. Okay, uh, first sermon today is, I'll read the text, uh, and then we'll dive into the sermon, then I'll read the text for the second one and dive into the second sermon. Here we go. The uh, the gospel text that forms the basis of this sermon uh, begins at Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 51. I read, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his uh, disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them, and then they went on to another village. Then as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That is the... Uh, that That is the text that forms the basis of this sermon by Pastor Charles Saint-Ange, Memorial Lutheran Church, Houston, Texas. Here we go. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is said that Herman Cortez, the Spaniard who set about conquering Aztec Mexico in the 1500s, scuttled his ships to prevent potential mutineers from setting sail back for Cuba. Now, since Herman was a borderline mutineer himself, he ought to know the danger. And the principle behind the idea was sound. If there were no ships to fall back to, there could be nowhere for his men to go but forward. There could be no looking back. In much the same way, Jesus says, there can be no looking back for those called to follow him. No looking back for judgment or vengeance. No looking back for worldly comforts that we miss. No looking back to old traditions that have been left behind. And not even any looking back to old family and friends. As a 100,000 fans watched... Richard Petty ended his 45-race losing streak and picked up stock car racing's biggest purse, $74,000. And it all happened at the Daytona 500. Petty's win, however, was a complete surprise to everybody watching the race. Going into the last lap, he was running 30 seconds behind the two leaders, which is a tremendous amount in car racing. All at once, however, the car that was in second place tried to pass the number one man on the final stretch, which caused the first car to drift inside and force the challenger off the track and into the infield grass. What happened next was incredible. The offended driver pulled his car back onto the track, caught up with the leader, and forced him into the outside wall, both vehicles coming to a screeching halt. 
The two drivers jumped out of their cars and quickly got into an old-fashioned slugging match. Maybe they thought they were playing hockey, not racing cars. And so, in the meantime, third-place driver Petty made his way across the finish line. Wasn't it St. Paul who wrote in Galatians that we ought to be, as Christians, running the race in such a way that we win the prize? Not in such a way that we worry about the other people racing, and certainly not in such a way that we worry that they get what's coming to them here and now. You could almost see, though, especially as you listen to the opening verses of the Gospel reading, James and John looking back at the Samaritan villages that they have left in seething anger at the way that not only they have been treated, but the way that their Lord has been treated. Let's call down fire from heaven, Lord. Let's take them out. We'll show them who's boss. The only reason, of course, that James and John can be thinking that way is that they're looking back. But Jesus is moving on. He has his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. His face set like flint, the old translations used to say. That is where he is going, and what is past is past, because Jesus' primary concern is the salvation of the human race. Not just the Jews, but also these Samaritans that have been left behind. He's going to die for them too. And he can't be worried about saving them and focused on the redemption of humanity if he's looking back over his shoulder at those mean, rotten, nasty Samaritans. For Jesus, there is no looking back. A man comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds with a rather cryptic line. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does this mean, we good Lutherans might ask ourselves? It means this, that you will lose things in this world when Christ is your Savior. You will lose creature comforts that you might otherwise be able to indulge in if you weren't a Christian. You may lose income. You may lose vacation opportunities. You may lose time off and evenings and weekends. But don't look back. Don't look back at what being a Christian might have cost back there because your salvation isn't back there. The future that Jesus has prepared for you that is yet to come is yet to come. It is in the future, and this is where we focus our attention, at the place where Jesus is waiting to meet us, and that is in a place that has not come yet. So there's no point in looking back. I'm often struck by the stories of northern European conversions to Christianity. I don't mean recent. I mean the old ones when Norway and what would become Sweden and Denmark and Finland went from being pagan nations to becoming Christian. I just finished a novel, a historical fiction novel, talking about how the Norwegians, a certain group of them, became Christian. But I also remember the story of Iceland, one of my favorite countries. A long history Iceland has. 
And in the year 1000 AD, exactly, the Speaker of the Congress of Iceland, the Althing, Thorgeir Thorkelson, accepted the responsibility of the Congress to decide for all of the tribes whether or not Iceland would forsake its pagan past and confess Christ as their Savior. He spent a day and a night resting under a fur blanket. It's cold, Iceland. Contemplating. What are we going to do? God, whoever you are, what do you want us to confess? How do you want us to worship? And the following day, he presented himself before the All Thing, before the Congress, and announced that Iceland would indeed become a Christian country. What makes this story so interesting, though, is that Thorgeir was a noted pagan priest. And what he decided to do to show that this was not just Iceland's decision but his own was to gather up all of his idols. Thor's hammer, the statues of Felca, and all the other goddesses and gods took them to the top of a noted waterfall in Iceland that I actually got to stand at the foot of and threw the idols off to mark the separation between his pagan past and Christian future. And to this day, those waterfalls are called the Waterfalls of the Gods, the place where the gods of Iceland were overturned in favor of Christ Jesus. There was, of course, always a temptation to look back. In these places, there was always a temptation when things went bad, when things didn't go quite as well as maybe they had in previous times, to go back to the old gods, to call out to Thor again instead of this man, this Jewish carpenter who had been crucified a thousand years earlier in some country that most Icelanders would never see. And that's where the point of Jesus' conversation midway through our gospel lesson comes through. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Leave the past behind, the old ways, the old traditions. You, Christians, have been called out of slavery to sin, death, and Satan, and into freedom. That's what Paul wrote to the Galatians. You no longer are under a yoke of slavery, but now have been set free. How can you then look back at this slavery that you have left behind? Slavery to old idols and old gods and old sins and old ways. There is, Jesus says, no looking back. Only off into the future that Christ has assured for us. It's strange, of course, how things come full circle. For the northern Europeans a thousand years ago, the strain in a family came when a son or a daughter converted to Christianity and forsook the old gods and no longer participated in the solstice celebrations and all of the other rituals. In the last few years, though, in the few decades that have come since the 50s, families have learned the pain of their sons and daughters leaving the church, leaving Christianity. I was reading a series of vignettes about Mother's Day in Reader's Digest a few weeks ago, and it asked mothers what they wanted most from their children as a gift. 
And the one that struck home to me the most was this, where one mother wrote, I want my family with me in church. I want my family with me at worship. Having served in a community where children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren had all left the church, many of whom only ever came back on, of all things, not Easter or Christmas, but Mother's Day, for this exact reason, I know what that mother was writing. Maybe some of you do too, who've had the pain of children or grandchildren or even great-grandchildren who have left the church. And yet, as I said, things come full circle. We are now living in a day and age where the strain comes into a family, once again, from children who are coming to Christ, who are seeing in Him salvation, who are leaving parents who are perhaps of a more liberal bent or even outright atheists, and now finding that Jesus' prophecy is coming true for them, that brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. When those situations come, we are all tempted to look back. We are tempted to try and construct a Christianity that will bring peace to our families or at least find some way that we can still be Christian and still have a Thanksgiving dinner that doesn't erupt in conflict over the discussion of religion. And yet in those situations... In those situations, Jesus says one more time, do not look back. Don't look back. Look where I am, and where I am is in the future, not the past. Your family is here now. There is a wonderful story from the Gospels where Jesus' mother and brothers come to basically cart him off to the Palestinian equivalent of the loony bin. They figure he is totally off his rocker and it is time to put this Messiah thing to an end. And his disciples, not just the twelve, but all the men and women who have been following him around, come and say, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus just looks at them and says, My mother and my brothers? Those who hear my word are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. You are my family. There is no more looking back. These are all, of course, tough words from Jesus. And like Lot's wife, who was told not to look back at the destruction of her home, there is always the temptation to look over our shoulder and see what is happening, to wonder if there will be judgment on these people who have mistreated, to wonder what our families and friends would have been like if we had believed differently, to wonder what things would be like with the old traditions. And yet in each and every one of these cases, Jesus reminds us of the freedom which he has delivered to us at his cross, that his blood was shed that we might be freed from that past and that we might have the assurance of a future that is greater than any of our imaginings. And therefore, why, why would we want to look back when the new Jerusalem is yet waiting for us with Christ? It was a song that was written for one youth event that I went to based on the first verse of our Galatians reading for today. Freedom has come. We are no longer slaves. We are daughters and sons. Freedom 
a new life begun. We're never going back now that freedom has come. We will not look back, for our destiny, our future, is held in the hands of the one who died for us at Jerusalem, where he had set his eyes, and who waits for us in glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Grace, mercy. Whew. Amen. Wowzer. Just, I, I don't, I, mm, that is my third time listening to that sermon, and wow, and it ends on Christ. Don't look back. Our future is in him. Our future is the new Jerusalem, and there our Savior is waiting for us. He has set us free from sin, death, and the devil, and shed his blood on the cross for our sins. Whew. Good stuff. All right. I told you this was a twin spin. Sermon number two is another money sermon. And he handles this completely different. I remember when we had, uh, I played two sermons uh, that uh, dealt with this passage, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And it was uh, Pastor Swirla and uh, Ron Hodel and uh, Charles St. Ange. Uh, he handles this uh, very differently than uh, both of those gentlemen. Here's the text, and then we'll get into the sermon. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13, I begin. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me or a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's Charles St. Ange on this gospel text. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are times when you get those rather odd parables to preach on on a Sunday morning where you spend most of the week racking your brain as a preacher for some kind of illustration to connect that parable with people's everyday lives. This is not one of those parables. This is one of those parables where so many stories jump to your mind that you've got to try and whittle it down to one. And the one that I finally decided on was something that happened in my life just a week ago to friends of mine. I'll change their names to Bob and Susan, since they're almost related to me. Bob and Susan, you see, got married about a decade ago and had a master plan for their life. 
they were going to amass enough fortune that they could both retire at the age of 50 and spend the rest of their lives together enjoying each other's company and doing whatever it was that they wanted unimpeded by work. They decided they weren't going to have any kids. Kids, you see, are an obstacle to financial independence. So those of you who are parents know this well. And so they didn't want to have children. They didn't want to spend too much time with friends or family. That, too, is an obstacle to financial independence. You end up spending too much money on them and not enough time at work making money for yourself. So they worked long, long hours. So long, in fact, that they didn't even have time to spend with each other. But that was okay, because once they were 50 and retired, then they would have all that time to themselves. Susan worked 70, 80-hour weeks, hardly saw Bob, because he worked 70 or 80-hour weeks. At least that's what she thought he was doing. It turned out, unfortunately, that what he was actually doing was having an affair. And so it hit her as a ton of bricks when this husband decided to file for divorce. So much for this great plan of retirement and actually getting to know one another. Fools! Fools! That's what Jesus uses as a word in the parable that we hear from the Gospel. It's a little bit harsh. It's not something that we hear too often coming from our Savior's lips, especially when Jesus assigns that word to God Himself. Normally in the parables, there's an oblique reference to God. He is the master of the house or the head of the household or some other figure, the king of the kingdom. But in this particular parable, God makes an appearance. And God's word that he gives to the types of things that this rich fool did was fool. Aphron is the word in Greek, quite literally, brainless one. Stupid beyond measure, you might say. Stupid because this man had looked for joy in his life's possessions and sacrificed relationships with everyone around him to get them. Most importantly, sacrificed his relationship with God. Every parable is told in a context, and this is this parable's context. Okay, before we get to that context, whew, notice he's preaching some pretty flamethrower on high, burn your face off, melt you to the ground law right now. And some of you are going, okay, well, he's preaching the law. Why isn't Chris playing the siren? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Answer to the question because he's using the law lawfully. Uh, you, you don't preach the law, say, now, come on, people, here's the God's law says, and he, I've broken it down in three easy steps so that you can apply it to your lives and pull it off. No, that's that's an improper preaching of the law. Okay, What's the difference between that kind of preaching and what uh, Pastor St. Ange is doing? Answer, he's preaching the law to kill you. He's preaching the law to strip away any false notions of self-righteousness that you might be holding on to. He's preaching the law to smash your idols. Yeah, this is, this is how you preach the law. Let's continue. A man in this crowd who is there to listen to Jesus comes up and says, Teacher, or more literally, instructor... 
tell my brother or brothers to divide the family inheritance with me. It's a call for justice. Give me what's rightfully mine, Lord. But the question is kind of hanging there in the background. What is right for him to have? The focus of this man who comes asking Jesus' help is on stuff. And he wants what he thinks is his rightful stuff. But what about his brother? What about his family? Obviously, they are not getting along, because if they were getting along, they certainly wouldn't need a mediator. They are divided, a house separated. And Jesus, you see, is a uniter, not a divider. He says so himself. Hey, guy, he says, who made me a judge or, literally, divider, arbitrator, our text says, between you all? Who called upon me to be the one who separates people? The implication being that that is not at all what Jesus wants to do. He is basically telling this man that he is too anxious to be united with his money and not nearly anxious enough to be reunited with his flesh and blood. There is something more to be gained or lost here than money, Jesus implies. There is a relationship. And it's from that point of view that Jesus tells the parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. The land of the rich man produced the plenty. Says something about where our own wealth and possessions and stuff come from, doesn't it? We so often think it comes from us. How often has it come from the hand of God? Now listen carefully where the rich man goes with this. He thought to himself... What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? whole lot of me in there, not a lot of you. More accurately, he wasn't just thinking to himself. He was dialoguing with himself. This is a word that's normally used for a discussion that goes on with more than one person. But Jesus implies that this guy is just having his own kind of conference call. It's a conference call of one. It's a parliament of one unique person. Very short debate if it's just one person. Don't even need Robert's Rules of Order. But there he is, dialoguing among himself. Now, if you lived in a Middle Eastern culture or even in a lot of other cultures around the world that still work this way, this would strike you as amazing. Because in most cultures around the world, outside of North America and Europe, and even in the Middle Eastern cultures, men dialogue with each other. They talk with each other. In fact, I was just watching a show this last week on the Travel Channel, Anthony Bourdain's uh, No Restrictions, where he was in, or No Reservations, where he happened to be in Liberia. And he got this helicopter to take him to this village in uh, the uh, northern Liberia, away from Monrovia, the capital, where helicopter was the only way you could get there. This is a tribe where he had been the first kind of real outsider from North America to visit in decades. And he noticed that there was a daily pattern for life. The women spent all their time preparing the food for the meals. And the men took off to go and hang out at the palm wine distillery. Now, that might seem a little bit selfish of them, but what the men were doing was actually very important. They were going out to drink some palm wine and discuss the issues of the village. 
resolve conflicts, talk about what was going on in each other's lives, men that were having disagreements with each other, and resolve them there and there. The elders came together to discuss the future of the village, how the crops were going, what was happening with the harvest. Things got done in community. But here in this parable, this rich man is in discussion about what to do with the land and its plenty with himself and nobody else. Anyone listening to that parable would not have missed that point. Our man doesn't have room for anybody else. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, here's what I'm going to do. Wow. And it's there, of course, at the end that God enters the story with our famous word. Brainless one. Fool. Well, why is he a fool? Well, if it doesn't seem obvious, he's a fool, first of all, because he thought that the wealth that the land produced was his to do with, to serve his own needs. He's a fool because he thought that his wealth, he forgot that his life and his wealth are both on loan from God and can be demanded back at any time. And he's a fool because he has isolated himself from his creator and from his neighbors. He has traded possessions for people. God basically comes to him and says, you planned alone, you built alone, you indulged alone, and now you will die alone, apart from family and friends, and apart from, God says, me. You put your trust in possessions that were never yours, and in so doing, you sacrifice the things that God has given you that actually matter. Now, our turning from people to possessions to find joy, from God to goods, if you will, goes right back to the very foundation and beginning of sin. What was it that Adam and Eve did in the garden? They sacrificed a relationship with God and a relationship with each other for fruit, for a thing. You could even argue that it was for knowledge and wisdom, but it says in Genesis that it was to possess knowledge and wisdom. It was, again, about a possession. They sacrificed the perfect relationship they had with their Creator for a possession, something that God would have given them anyway, as we'll see in a minute. So you could say that Christ's primary role in coming into the world as our Savior was to save us from an obsession with possessions and to bring us back into fellowship with God and with one another. That's how John puts it in his first epistle. First John chapter 1, he writes, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, who made that fellowship possible. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John understood that that was the purpose of Christ coming and dying on the cross, that we might have fellowship with God and now have a return to full fellowship with one another, that we might find joy in the fact that we have eternal life given to us as a gift from God through Christ Jesus, and that we might find joy in sharing that eternal life and fellowship with each other.
You know, this is probably the best apologetic, the best argument I've seen for the relationship with God talk. But it's so much better to hear it from the text. Oh, wow. Boy, this is very convicting, isn't it? And at the same time, at the same time, we've got the gospel comforting us the whole way through. Wow. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. The preacher of Ecclesiastes sets up this distinction between believers and unbelievers. The believers find their joy in Christ and in the fellowship they have with one another in Christ. The unbeliever is busy gathering stuff. Interesting distinction. God's only Son, you see, took flesh and blood to walk among us, to claim us back for Himself, because we were His rightful inheritance. He didn't come to get things. Wasn't that what the devil tempted Him with on the top of the mountain? I'll give you every kingdom on earth, every possession you could imagine. And Jesus rejects that temptation because He knows what He has truly come to possess, and that is you and me. And He gains us for Himself to be His possession, not with stuff, not with gold or silver, but with His own life, with His own blood, that we might have joy in His presence. So this man that comes to Jesus and wants Him to be a divider and not a uniter, to get Him His stuff, Jesus tells this parable to have him ask himself, have an internal dialogue, this question. Where will you truly find joy? When you get your half of the inheritance? Or when you find peace with your brother? When you get more stuff to put in your bank account? Or when you find that I have brought you peace with God? My wife, Deborah, had the opportunity to go to Liberia. And when she went to Liberia, she saw tremendous poverty that hadn't existed before. Back in the 1980s, there was a horrendous civil war that destroyed most of that country's infrastructure. And she talked to one person who was a brother of a friend of ours in Philadelphia who um, had a shack from which he tried to sell trinkets during the day and which he slept in at night on the streets of downtown Monrovia. And he stood at the door of his shack and he took my wife under his arm and and pointed up to the top of the hill where his house used to be. Beautiful suburban community wouldn't have looked out of place here in Texas. Destroyed because of the Civil War. And he talked about his life before the war and what he used to do and his training and his university education. And Deb looked at where he was living now and what he was doing and did not at all expect the words that came out of his mouth. Which was after pointing out all this stuff, he looked at her and said, But God is great. And God is good. And in that moment, my wife understood what it meant to have fellowship. Because this man said, God is good because of what Christ has done for me and for you. And that now we are together, even though you are from North America, I am from Africa. We are here together in this place to share the joy of Christ Jesus. 
Now, that still leaves us with the question about all of our stuff. And we do have a lot of stuff. North America is the rich man's land that has produced plenty. Houston, even more so, within Texas. And there are two things we can talk about to do with that stuff. The first is that we might do like the rich man in the parable. Go into an internal dialogue. Well, what shall we do to store up our crops? We could say to ourselves, selves, let us establish mutual funds and investment accounts that in a little while we may take it easy and stop worrying about our financial future altogether. Not have to worry about whether God's going to provide for tomorrow because we'll have looked after it ourselves. I attended a church, it was the church in which I was baptized, that had a master plan for their future. They were going to create an endowment fund that would get them to the point where they didn't need to collect dollar one from an offering plate. The church would be entirely self-sufficient. I'm actually pleased to say that that church is struggling right now financially. I think that's a good place to be because it forces you back to relying on God instead of your own works. The second option, of course, is to do this. To remind ourselves together, brothers and sisters in Christ, where our true joy is found, and that is in Christ Jesus and His cross for what He has done for us. And that we can share that joy with our own brothers and sisters around the world in recognizing who we are as the body of Christ. And so we could then say to ourselves something like this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you who are here in Houston, you who are in Nicaragua, you who are in Nigeria where Pastor Wokoma has gone, you who are in the inner city of Houston, you who are in Mexico, you who are in the Galleria area, those who are blind, those who are deaf, let us come together and speak of what to do with this bounty that the Lord has given to us. Let us as the body of Christ find ways to make our joy as Christ's body complete. And this is how we are talking as memorial. I know this because I see the things that are happening in our midst. I see those who have made it possible to open a blind outreach center here, to reach out to those in our community who may not be able to see as we do. Tracy, our administrator, and Janice, and Jill Stoneburner, and Mark Porter, and Ruth Hansen, all the people who have made that a possibility, and the rest of you who have volunteered to help and hopefully will be able to come on board as this project grows. Now, I want to point something out here. You'll notice he's praising the good works of the folks there at Memorial Lutheran Church. How is this different than what Rick Warren does constantly? Plain and simple. Notice that the whole setup for discussing these good works is sharing what Christ has given us. Whereas Rick Warren, he talks about how cool Saddleback is and all the great things they're doing because he's holding them up as obedient. They're receiving God's blessing because they're so obedient. And here, Pastor Saint-Ange is pointing out, look at what our great God and Savior has so graciously gifted us with, what he's produced, and how we're sharing the joy of what the Lord has produced with our neighbors. 
This is the difference between good works wrought through the gospel and the rotting false fruits of self-righteousness. This is good to hear. For John Coulter and for everyone who has devoted time to go to Nicaragua and share the joy that we have in Christ there and have our brothers and sisters in Nicaragua share that joy with us. For Carolyn Curry and Robert Brimberry and Claudine Bandari and all the people who have donated to WAM to help those who are less well-off here in our own community. And the list goes on of the projects in which we are engaged in in which we are finding our joy brought to a fuller completeness because we are sharing the joy that we have being reconciled in Christ. Sacrificing. Oh, man. I I mean, I I don't, I, I cannot think of a sermon where the difference is starker. Good works for neighbor in love to share the joy that we have in Christ because we've all been reconciled to our Savior and to God through the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. (sighs) Good works produced by faith. This is just beautiful to hear. Absolutely beautiful. I'm backing it up a smidge. Hang on. I just... This is music to my ears. ...to a fuller completeness because we are sharing the joy that we have being reconciled in Christ. Sacrificing time and talents and treasures that others may know the joy of Jesus' forgiveness might seem foolish in the eyes of the world. But I'd rather be called a fool by the world than be called a fool by the God who has so richly blessed us not just in time and talents and treasures, but in the blood of Christ, in forgiving us and showing us mercy and opening the kingdom of God to us. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Grace, mercy. Hmm. Wow. I, 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 that's about the best I can commentate on it. Wow. I'm so glad that he preached the gospel and tried instead of tried to nudge, aren't you? <laughs> oh, I, I can't add to that. That that oh man, it is like a cold drink of water for my thirsty soul to hear the gospel, and not only that, don't ah oh, it 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 just kindles a fire inside of you. To want to go and share the gospel, not because you have to, but because of how gracious our God and Savior is. Oh, what a difference clarity and a clear proclamation of the gospel makes. What a difference. All right, it, we're up to another, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I need to remind you. Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. That's right. This is a partnership. And and I would hope that you would count it sheer joy. Sheer joy to partner with us in getting the gospel out, of providing clear biblical discernment and pointing people to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
and telling them of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's right. You can share in our joy in, in presenting the gospel here at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio by financially sharing what God has produced for you to, to, to sustain your needs and other things. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95. That's it, not much, just a little bit of your treasure. $6.95, and it means a lot to us because as the more people who sign up for our crew, it levels out our giving on a monthly basis and makes it so we can get through those lean months. So, uh, you know, don't don't uh, look down on the small amount. It really is a huge amount to us, especially as more and more people join the crew. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.